Good afternoon and welcome to this week's Zoom in webinar. My name is Adam Lassoff, President-Elect for the NAOP San Francisco Bay Area Chapter. Our topic of a discussion today is the life science landscape in the Bay Area. But before we get started with the discussion, I wanted to take a few moments to recognize our NAOP Chapter sponsors, without which we would not be able to provide valuable resources like today's webinar to our members. Starting with our platinum sponsors, Bank of America, Cox, Castle, and Nicholson, and Cushman and Wakefield, JLL, JP Morgan, and Newmark Knight Frank, and our gold sponsors, Alan Mackins, Avis and Young, Eastill Secured, Heinz, Orchard Partners, and Swift Real Estate Partners. Our silver corporate sponsors, our friend of NAOP sponsors, Finally, I wanted to go over a few items related to the Zoom platform. I encourage you to uh, join Zoom on your computer if you haven't already done so because we will be sharing a short presentation before our discussion panel. The link to join may be found in reminder sent prior to the start of this webinar. We have a number of participants on this webinar, so everyone in the audience is on mute to avoid background noise. But you are welcome to use the chat feature to share information on, uh, or ideas with your fellow attendees. Click the chat bubble at the bottom of your screen to open the chat window. We're also going to be doing a poll, so please make sure to register in the link. If you have a question, you can type it into the Q&A box and we'll pose the question to our speakers, time permitting. If anyone else in the audience sees a question in the Q&A box that they are also interested in, they can click the thumbs up image to upvote the question and show it that it is popular. Now let's get started with the webinar. I'd like to introduce our Zoom-in participants today. Moderating today's panel is Becca Studer. With over 11 years of experience in the real estate industry, Becca is the leasing manager for Phase 3 Real Estate Partners and ambassador for the Bay Area Life Science Real Estate Portfolio. Our panelists include Chris Haskell, the VP of Bayer's West Coast Innovation Center, where his team supports Bayer's global drug discovery through developing and managing partnerships with US academic research institutions and emerging life science firms. Jeff Sears is a partner at Wareham Development, one of the leading developers for companies with complex technology infrastructures, including life science. And lastly, Gregory Thiel, the director for the Biomedical Manufacturing Network. Gregory has worked for over 20 years with large and small biomedical and engineering technology companies, helping them with business, technology, and production planning. Becca, please take it away. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Adam, for that great introduction. Um, to kick things off, uh, you should see a poll in your notification chat bar. Adam mentioned this before, so it'd be great if we can get our participants to take that poll, and that should pop up momentarily in your chat bar. Um, but without further ado, welcome, everyone. I know that we are all thrilled today to be here and talk about some of these great topics in and around the current life science landscape. As we're all aware, the Bay Area life science sector is the second largest in the nation while holding some of the most innovative companies and entrepreneurial minds 
and the state's top universities in and around the life science community. California received more than 4.59 billion in NIH funding in 2019, with 1.87 billion of that flowing into the Bay Area, driving the pace of innovation into the region. VC funding was around 8.6 billion, where we saw a 27% increase quarter over quarter for Q2. So as we can see, there's a significant amount of momentum and confidence behind this innovative industry. Uh, here on our panel today, we have Gregory, Gregory with Biomedical Manufacturing Networks, and he's here to give us a, a brief background on the active markets and the cluster in the Bay Area here today. So Greg, take it away. Thank you, Becca. Uh, it's, uh, let me just say it's a, it's, a, uh, it's a pleasure to share this information, this data, and uh, this, uh, this research with you. The Biomedical Manufacturing Network has been gathering data on all of the biomedical companies in California since 2014. And so uh, this is a, a real privilege to show uh, a new audience this information. And so just beginning, uh, I'm going to tell you two stories that come out of this data about the Bay Area. And, and the first story begins with this, this diagram, which has thousands of pins on it. Each one of these pins uh, is a company. And they're color-coded by the type of uh, company within the biomedical industry. And so I'm going to tell you, my first story will be how this array of lots of pins actually turns into, into some very interesting spatial patterns uh, that are very relevant to many, many audiences. And if this is a real estate audience exclusively, it's an ex incredibly important point because different sectors within the biomedical industry have different real estate needs. Okay, so let me, uh, let me start with the, uh, this first story. Now, this is the biotech companies. These are all the green dots here. Uh, green pins are, are biotech companies. Now, biotech companies, um, so bio, uh, the biomedical industry is divided into biotech, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, medical equipment, digital healthcare, and genomics. Those are some of the six main kind of sectors within the industry. This first one, biotech, most people who are familiar, even even marginally familiar with the biotech industry, know that South San Francisco uh, is, uh, is a hotspot for biotech companies. These are, these are companies that use uh, living material uh, to, to make products, uh, often, oftentimes drugs. And, uh, and, and so knowing that South San Francisco is a cluster, that's pretty, uh, pretty well known. But what isn't well known is the second circle. And the second circle is Silicon Valley. Uh, back in 2012, the Harvard Business Review published an article saying the life science industry needs its own Silicon Valley. They didn't know, because they really didn't have the data that we have, uh, that Silicon Valley already uh, is, is, uh, is a biotech cluster. And, and so there are more biotech companies in Silicon Valley, uh, the, the bigger circle here, than all the other parts of the Bay Area combined. Uh, so that's one of the kind of first surprising points that come out of this data, that there's so many biotech companies uh, throughout, throughout Silicon Valley. That's number one. Number two, pharmaceutical companies are, are uh, well represented throughout the Bay Area. They spread out more than biotech. I'm going to toggle between biotech and pharma. So biotech here clustered more uh, densely in, on the peninsula uh, and, and the, uh, the, the um, Western East Bay. Uh, but uh, 
still lots of pharmaceutical companies. There's the companies that make drugs from chemicals, are basically chemical companies. Uh, and uh, again, lots in South San Francisco, but lots of companies in the pharmaceutical sector uh, in Silicon Valley. And you see they've spread out more, more recently. And one of the nice things about us having data since 2014 is we know some how the industry has started to spread out. And some of that spread has occurred up into, uh, up into the East Bay, Richmond, uh, Pleasanton, uh, Livermore, uh, but it also is spread on, into places like San Jose uh, and, and Fremont. So that's, that's number two. So biotech and pharma, uh, uh, interesting patterns within the Bay Area. But now I'm gonna tell you, I'm gonna show you the picture for medical devices. This is devices that are actually inserted into the body. Pacemakers are a common example that most people are aware of. May get ready for this one, okay? Because you got the pharma, pharmaceutical companies in front of you, but here comes, here comes medical devices, right? See this circle? Over 85% of the medical devices com companies in the Bay Area are south of the San Mateo Bridge. Those of you who are, who are not from the, uh, from the Bay Area, that's the bridge that's just above the circle here. But over 85% of the uh, medical device companies are clustered very tightly in the valley, up into Fremont uh, and uh, through, through San Jose and Milpitas. And, and th this is really becomes more and more relevant because the real estate needs for a, a medical device company, uh, it, it's more of an assembly line with clean rooms compared to pharmaceutical and, uh, and biotech, which is much more lab-based. And, and often a, the, the, the differential is usually uh, four to one from biotech pharma to medical devices. So you need four times as much space per person uh, because of the lab needs with a biotech or pharmaceutical company. So this is a really interesting point. Uh, the device companies here are south of the San Mateo Bridge. Medical equipment companies, very similar pattern, but uh, a, a lot of medical equipment companies uh, have, uh, have sprung up in the San Francisco, in, in San Francisco city proper, which is an interesting finding as well. But still, all through the valley, up into Fremont, lots of medical uh, equipment companies. Two new sectors that really kind of round out this story, uh, digital healthcare and genomics. So digital healthcare first. Uh, digital healthcare has exploded in San Francisco. There are, there are over 300 biomedical companies in San Francisco proper, and many of them are, are digital healthcare. They have a much smaller footprint. They're as tech, uh, as much of a tech company as you can get, uh, but they're, you know, digital healthcare. And, uh, and of course, all through Silicon Valley because of the intersection between digital healthcare and sensors and software, okay? And then finally, genomics. Again, a similar pattern, lots of them in Silicon Valley, but also lots of, uh, lots of companies in San Francisco. So that's story number one. You see a picture like this with lots and lots of pins, but when you start pulling it out, you get to see a, a really interesting pattern uh, by sector. And with, that, with each sector comes a different real estate space, uh, space need uh, for, uh, for, uh, for tenants. Okay, so that's story number one. Uh, story number two, uh, and uh, again, some of this is just appetizer, and if anyone ever wants more information, I can certainly share. Uh, but story number two is what I call microclimates of biomedical opportunity. And so I, I did a, what's called a heat map and it showed some real hot spots around the Bay Area. And so I calculated location quotients, which many of you are probably aware of, uh, to see if there were these concentrations or clusters in different parts of the Bay Area. And so from that analysis, five of those spring up. Uh, Berkeley Emeryville, Fremont, Silicon Valley, 
South San Francisco and San Francisco. These are heavily concentrated. What it means is that uh, there's a higher concentration than the average uh, in these particular locations. And that means uh, anything over one, a one-to-one -one ratio, is considered a cluster. But in all five of these locations, the, the, the numbers are three, in between three and five. Uh, and so these are highly concentrated areas for, for the biomedical industry. So let me, let me tell you a little bit of story about this. And again, I know, I, I know this is just a, uh, an appetizer. But So I've gone through and analyzed and interviewed people and gathered data about each one of these microclimates. Uh, the Berkeley Emeryville microclimate is highly concentrated with small companies that depend on government funding, have a very high turnover rate as far as you know, life and death, uh, higher than the rest of the uh, Bay Area. The companies are one quarter of the size, so they're small companies, and over half the companies have some type of rooted connection to either Berkeley, uh, UC Berkeley or the uh, uh, Lawrence Berkeley lab. So that's a profile for that first microclimate. Fremont is almost completely different in the sense that, and I call it scale up, because the companies that survive and scale up their production move to places like Fremont. Fremont in particular, but other cities around Fremont have, have gotten some of the overflow as well. And so that's a second microclimate, is a climate of scale up. That's where you go when you grow up, the companies are much bigger than the average there. Uh, the companies make have products and have revenue and, and rely on corporate investment of any type of investment. So a different story. The third one moving around the bay is into what I call integrated products, and that's Silicon Valley. The companies, and again, if you were surprised to see so many biomedical companies in, in Silicon Valley, the, one of the biggest reasons is proximity to related supporting industries. So not only the technology, but also legal services and, and, uh, and venture capital, and obviously pr proximity to Stanford as well. So that's the, the third microclimate and a very strong entrepreneurial climate. The companies aren't small as, as they are up in uh, uh, Berkeley Emeryville, but they're, they're, uh, they're growing and uh, they're kind of these mid-sized mid gazelles as they're referred to, uh, fast growing companies integrating lots of different technologies. The fourth is proximity pipeline. This is uh, this is uh, this is South San Francisco. This has over 200 companies. They've moved there specifically to be close by to the, many of the large companies uh, that are in the the uh, biopharma industry. And so, right now, the latest data for 2020 is only 30 of the 200 companies have over 20 employees. So there's many, many small companies looking to get noticed. They're in incubators, they're in uh, both public, private, and uh, incubators, and uh, they're there, proximity pipeline, right? They represent a pipeline for these larger, larger companies. And then finally, the last microclimate is San Francisco. And this is what I call technology emergence, because this is where the digital healthcare and the genomics companies really have, have, have located. And the interesting thing about them is they need a much smaller footprint than, for example, the companies in Fremont uh, or even the companies in, uh, in South San Francisco and Silicon Valley. They're smaller, they need desk space in many times, they need computing power. Uh, and so it's a different hiring pattern too. When I talk, give this talk to people who are on the workforce side, uh, I touch on the, the vast differences between the different microclimates as far as workforce as well. Okay, so those are the five microclimates. Very quickly, a little, just a cherry on top of this story, and that is over those 2014 to 2019, I've been gathering data on movement within the microclimates. You know, there's a narrative out there that companies as they grow up, leave the Bay Area. 
Well, we tracked over 100 companies over that time period. 45 did leave the Bay Area, but 55 stayed. And those 55 companies, they moved to different parts of the Bay Area to gather different types of resources. Some of the companies moved to Fremont, 23 of the 55, nearly half of them, moved there to scale up. Some moved to Silicon Valley to be close to uh, venture capital and, uh, and other you know, kind of related uh, technology companies. Uh, some moved to South San Francisco to be close to some of those big companies I talked about to be part of that proximity pipeline. And some moved to San Francisco specifically as well uh, to be close to the assets they needed. So very interesting pattern. So these five microclimates and over this five-year period, the movement of over, over more than half the companies that moved, okay, they stayed in the Bay Area and they moved to different parts of the Bay Area for st business strategic reasons, okay? Yes, 45 moved for cost reasons, but 55 stayed for other types of strategic reasons. All right, so hopefully that gives you some sense of it uh, and, uh, and, and makes, makes uh, some sense out of all of these pins on the map. Uh, we're very pleased to have the data, but what also makes sense is to, to add some stories to the data. So I hope that uh, gave you a little, uh, little kind of overview on the industry. Uh, back, back to you, Becca. Thanks, Greg. Uh, I, think this, um, I think this paints a great backdrop for today's conversation and the topics for our listeners. Um, it certainly hasn't been a year like any other um, you know, I think that it's important to touch on why this, this uh, San Francisco life science landscape is important today. Um, obviously, there's a lot of uh, buzz around this industry and the elephant in the room, COVID. Um, the life science sector has proven to be one of the more resilient sectors in the commercial industry during this pandemic. And uh, funding continues, as I mentioned earlier. Um, now, working from home is also the new norm, and we're seeing many companies tell their employees, hey, you know, we're not coming back into uh, the office until 2021, and for the, the life science space, you know, that's not really uh, sometimes an option when they have the, the laboratory uh, section of, of their space. And so pre-COVID, we saw a lot um, I saw, saw a lot of headlines between the tech and life science were competing for real estate uh, throughout the Bay Area, driving demand, cost, et cetera. Um, and so we saw this in Mission Bay with the ex example of the exchange project where Dropbox came in and they took about 715,000 square feet. And um, that was marketed as a life science slash office space. I think that they put around 80 million into that, that project just to from the infrastructure standpoint to, to make it lab capable. Um, in South San Francisco, the Kilroy project uh, at Oyster Point Stripe, they signed a 450,000 square foot deal in 2009. And so one of the first questions that I'd like to throw out to the panelists is kind of like a, a two-tier question. First, um, how have you guys seen the tech affect the life science market in your field experience over the last three to five years as it relates to this real estate crunch. Um, and then maybe the second part of that is, do you think that the work from home approach that the, the office side will have um, will open up new opportunities for the life science sector? Becca, let me, let me respond to that. Um, 
our company has been in the sector for over 40 years, which is about as long as it's really existed. I mean, the, the root of this industry sort of came from um, recombinant DNA research that was done out here in the West and elsewhere 40 or 50 years ago. And uh, certain sort of innovative scientists realizing that had a lot of possibility outside of the academic lab setting and taking it outside and turning it into products that mostly were benefiting human health. But um, the business has certainly changed. Um, 40 years ago, people didn't understand it. They were very anxious about it. Um, you know, there were lots of movies about Frankenstein bugs that were, you know, invented in a lab intentionally or otherwise, and we're gonna kill the planet. And it was even in this area, um, uh, an industry that sort of hid. And so it, it grew up in places that really were off the radar, um, old industrial or warehousing sections, South San Francisco, and actually our market, Berkeley and Emeryville, an old industrial area that had lost its purpose. Um, nowadays, everyone is much more aware of it. Um, people understand its benefits generally. Um, and right now, because of COVID, I think uh, there are a lot of real estate people who are looking around for something healthy and thinking this is it. Uh, Beck, I can weigh in a bit on uh, certainly how we're working in the current conditions. And we have both have our research and innovation site in San Francisco, as well as our manufacturing facility in Berkeley, which has over 40 acres in it. And in both cases, we're coming in with, you know, 30, 40% of our workforce, and these are essential workers that you can't do the work remotely. Um, and what's happening is that we're sort of expanding to take the entire space in, in the space we're working in, you know, because of social distancing, we're actually, we're actually taking more, we're finding ways to spread out on site. And so we're finding we really can't, we couldn't go to a smaller footprint under these kind of conditions. And you know the hope is that as we return back to a, a working environment where uh, we can work there, that that we will. You know, uh, I think we've all found new tools and ways to work remotely. But you know, the essence of of most biomedical research is is on site activity and and wet lab work. And some small startups can do things virtually, but th but those are those are not the norm. Right. I know that's what we've experienced as well, where, you know, the, the campus population hasn't gone down too much uh, because they need to be in the lab, um, which I think is, you know, completely different than the, the office sector. Becca, if I, if I could weigh in with some data, actually, on, uh, on your question of tech versus life science, because one of the benefits of tracking this data over time has been seeing which cities uh, are increasing in their number of uh, biotech or life science companies versus uh, the ones that are declining. And a very significant city of note is San Jose. Uh, San Jose is one of the few cities in the Bay Area that actually has lost life science companies since 2014. Uh, they've actually seen a 10% downturn. And, and so I was a, a guest uh, at the mayor's office in San Jose and, and they, uh, I, I 
thought, gosh, how do I present this story? <laughs> what, what, is this going to be embarrassing? <laughs> you know? and, uh, and so I presented it you know, very carefully, and, and, uh, and I turned to, to the mayor's staff, and they said, yeah, we knew this. We expected this. I said, really? They said, yeah, it was actually intentional. Uh, when we see permits and we see uh, development opportunities, we said, hmm, all right, what kind of space does a life science company, a biotech or a pharma company, what kind of space do they need per employee? And then compared that to, uh, to a, tech, a tech company. And they're, they're the ones that presented this ratio of about four to one ratio. So four to one for uh, four times the space needs uh, for, a, for a biotech or pharma company. And so I think some, some cities, at least San Jose, and, and that's no small you know, footnote city, that's a very significant city, and made a conscious choice to do that. And, uh, and so I think that's, that gets at your, your question about the competition between tech and, 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 uh, and life science. And do you see since, I mean, I know that there's very minimal real estate um, along the peninsula, do you see it actually pushing down to where it kind of forces, forces San Jose's hand to rethink this? Well, I think, well, if I'm not, I'm an engineer, not an economist, but if I, let me pretend I'm an economist, economist for a second, and I'm going to crystal ball, I would argue that a more balanced portfolio of industries represented in a city would make more sense. Uh, and so that, that's the hand forcing uh, that, uh, that one may uh, speculate about now in light of uh, the, uh, the situation we're in with COVID. Uh, how, however, let me, know, let me note this. One of the surprising things that we found looking at 2014 and 2020 data uh, was that the, the places with the highest concentrations got more concentrated. So, and I guess you're a great example of that, your property in South San Francisco, you went up. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I think what we're seeing is more and more spaces uh, being filled in. Uh, Palo Alto actually has more companies. Most of the Silicon Valley companies have more companies than they had in 2014. Not the same number, not fewer. Uh, and so they're not, so in that way, life science companies aren't being priced out of the real estate. Uh, some maybe, but generally in the aggregate, they're not. And so I'm actually seeing higher concentrations. Uh, Berkeley Emeryville uh, increased significantly from 2014 to 2020. So Jeff's doing a great job. Uh, and, uh, and so there's more and more companies there. And uh, yes, there's been some growth in places like Pleasanton uh, and, and some in Richmond. So there's been some, you know, spread, but the ink blot is actually not spread out. It's gotten more concentrated. If, well, that analogy. If, if I can add on to what Greg is saying, I mean, the industry, more than many, is based on intellectual property and knowledge workers. And these aren't necessarily knowledge workers like a computer science major coming out of college that can sit down and add value to an app company. Th these are usually PhDs. I mean, we have tenants where 70% of their employees have PhDs. So these are people very high value. Um, they're coming out of institutions. So it's no shock that a lot of the concentrations of the business here center around the institutions. We think of three legs of the innovation stool being UCSF, UC Berkeley and Stanford. And lo and behold, big concentrations of this type is sit in between those legs. So those are producing the people that are fueling the businesses and the businesses depend on them. So a great, great building in South San Jose isn't really going to matter. It's what's going to matter is where can I attract those employees who have a lot of choices with Greg showed you how many companies there are. Um, they have choices. So they want to be 
places that are enjoyable and often coming out of academic institutions, they want to be go then work in places where there are lots of other people, other scientists that create a community that they can continue that sort of academic um, campus feel. Yeah. And what, you know, what about the idea uh, on prices getting driven up? Um, I mean, their, their pocket book is only so big. So um, if they're, if they're driven out by, by the, the real estate pricing, you think that they would locate to a different area that would be a little bit more economically favorable? Well, I mean, I think some of Gregory's data around the last five years show that maybe in some cases, but there's a strong incentive to keep at least a large part of your, your campus in the Bay Area because people may not want to relocate. There's a lot of choices here. And with the growth of the industry in the last 10 years, you don't necessarily need to follow a company out of the state if that's the choice they're making. And I, I don't know many companies that move out of state unless they're moving to Boston Mm -hmm. or some other hotspot. And it's not a whole lot cheaper in Cambridge than San Francisco. It's kind of a race there. <laughs> yeah, Chris and Jeff are right on. They're very astute on this because they're, they, they've they experienced this firsthand. Me kind of having to step back to the data, it's re really fascinating to see that. I mean, you re-see the narratives. And I, and I think there must be, on some of these newspapers around the Bay, there must be a stock picture of a moving van that they just kind of drop into these articles because, you know, and, and so we, what we, here's what we did. We phoned most of those 45 companies that left the Bay Area, okay, when they moved over that five-year period. And the reason they moved was for strategic reasons, that their product had matured. And now it was time to go to a lower manufacturing uh, cost location. And, and, but that, that wasn't the majority. That was only, you know, only uh, 45 out of, the, out of the 100 companies. The other 55, and we interviewed many of them, they had the fascinating story about, hey, there's a different business need we have too. So think, think firm evolution, I guess. Again, I'm pretending to be an economist here, but think firm evolution. As a firm evolves, it needs different things. And, and, and that was the fascinating story. Instead of it just being this knee-jerk cost reaction. Uh, uh, yeah. Keep awesome. me off the soapbox, please. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, let's, uh, let's jump to our next topic. And that's kind of surrounded by market activity. Um, I know that I'm getting asked a, a ton, you know, hey, are you getting deals done or leases, you know, being signed? Um, I know that it's, it's slowed down a bit in the, the office world um, and, you know, a little bit more sublease spaces going, coming online with the office side. Um, but I, I personally haven't seen a slowdown. Um, I think in the, in the first, uh, you know, two or three weeks of this, you know, everyone was just trying to figure it out and we had, you know, the shelter, shelter in place. But um, as that got lifted and, you know, people got a little antsy. Um, it, it drove up a little bit more of attention and wondering if you guys saw the same thing in, in your field or position. Well, I'll, I'll say that we've seen very much what you've just described. You know, the, there are lots of players in the business and some are very large companies with lots of capital resources like Chris's, but many of them are funded externally trying to innovate some scientific idea into something that has value to people and and they can turn into an economic proposition and so they are basically innovation engines fueled with coal that's money from venture capitalists and so these companies grow and expand 
if people are willing to fund their ideas. And it's, it's risky to do it because it, it has a high failure rate for any single idea. Lots of people can turn into, you know, pivot and find other ideas, but it takes a lot of years and a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, the sector is still funding people. We had tenants funded it a couple weeks after shelter in place and continuing. So that investment in the sector drives people to grow and do transactions. Right, right. And as we see like the activity continue, um, there's, it seems like there's more and more landlords looking to get into the, the life science game. Do you think that this will, will help or hurt the market? And, you know, with a big company like Bayer, would, would they consider, you know, like a one-off, uh, building that, you know, maybe it's in a suite location, but the landlord, you know, doesn't have, uh, that life science experience, you know, how, how much of a driver is that you think for, for these companies? I, well, um. I mean, we've had our, our current landlords, Alexandria, and you know, right. we don't. Bayer doesn't lease a ton of space uh, around the world, and um, I, I know that when we were looking for the space that we eventually ended up in Mission Bay, we looked at some spaces that were were you know a lot cheaper and uh, were not life science landlords. And I think there's a lot of risks. Uh, we we see a lot of risks in going with with a crossover landlord or someone who's trying to repurpose some space. I mean, we. Like a lot of companies, we, we rely on animal studies, and these are, are really sensitive uh, to external environments. And you get a landlord who doesn't really understand some of these things, and it can it can impact your science in a way that you have to live with for a long time. So, I, you know, having experience and working with life science companies is really important when we look at at partners in this space. Right. Yeah, yeah I, Becca, I, I I think I think again, Chris and, and Jeff hit it on the head when they talked about just understanding the types of clients and the patients, Jeff, Jeff alluded to this idea of, of the t- length of time that it takes to bring a, a product to market. And, and when I'm a, probably the most common question I get when, when real estate people ask me about, you know, Hey, we're trying to repurpose. And, and so what are some of the requirements for the, you know, of life science companies that you work with? And I, and I tell them all the time, I said, how about a lot more patients? <laughs> um, because yeah, because these these companies take a long time to 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 get revenue, so they're not going to the type of company that is going to suddenly need tons and tons of space overnight. Uh, they're they're capital intensive, so they have a lot of equipment needs, and uh, and, and so it's a it's a different uh, different type of company. Now, having said that, uh, one of my earlier points in the in the introduction was that the companies vary significantly across the biomedical industry. Okay, I use biomedical as a very big umbrella intentionally because there's the life science companies that you know that are biotech and pharmaceutical, but the medical device and equipment companies uh, they have different needs. And so maybe the better way to see it as a real estate person is to say, mm, all right, I love this this life science gig or this biomedical gig here, but let me think what my property maybe is best for within that larger umbrella. Maybe it's not biotech or pharma. Maybe it's maybe it's digital healthcare, which is as tech as you get. It could be a bunch of software people, really, in many ways. Could be medical devices, which is assembly, as I said, and, and clean room. And so, yeah, so different, uh, maybe different flavors. It's like going to your ice cream parlor and going, hey, <laughs> I, yeah. I don't want those two. They don't fit. I, I don't like that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, uh, I think 
piece. It's great that you kind of pointed out that umbrella where there's, uh, you had mentioned there's five different kind of sections, uh, biotech. Um, I focus on six of them, six of them here. There are, there are more, but the six that I chose, I chose biotech and pharma are the old school, and that's what most people think of when they think of life science. Medical but, devices and equipment are very formidable, in fact, there's there's almost as many companies in life in medical device and equipment as pharma and, and biotech, but then these two up and comers are really significant to be watching, especially in a, in the in the in San Francisco. San Francisco's exploded with uh, with digital healthcare and genomics companies, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, so those are the six back. I just had a, a question come in from one of our panelists and they said, uh, with traditional office leasing slowing down in downtown San Francisco, is there an opportunity for lab conversions? And is the location desirable to a large swath of, of, of life science? Um, I, I think that it definitely is dependent, I think, uh, on, on the city themselves and the zoning. Um, I know that that's a, that's a hurdle to, to, to jump over. Um, as well as, you know, the conversion. And Jeff, do you want to speak to a little bit of, of that? Um, you know, it, you know, how big of an opportunity is there? You know, sure. I think, you know, the research buildings that we build are very different from office buildings. They're, they're sort of like if, you, if a normal office building was a VW bug, ours are Porsches. I mean, they've got a huge amount of, um, infrastructure capacity under the hood in terms of air movement, heating and cooling, all sorts of other resources. I mean, the buildings are machines that our tenants use as a key part of their business, as opposed to just a conditioned bubble inside of which their employees work. So the machine needs to keep running and a lot of office buildings just aren't gonna work that way. You know, most of our buildings have single pass air where you pull the air in and then you exhaust it to space for health safety reasons because there may be chemical densities and that that is not how office buildings tend to work um, you need a lot more room for air movement and so forth so it's a it can be done becca's company has done it we've done it but it's not easy even for people who are pretty experienced i mean i think there's a reason that the few companies that work in this space work in it in a very focused way with a pretty broad portfolio of buildings because it's very hard to do one off very hard right right i would agree that infrastructure those hvac units the the mep the mechanical electrical and plumbing component um when you have a building that's built you know it's it's trying to figure out like a new tetris pattern um I, I like to kind of explain it like that. Um, one other question we've got. So um, the Bay Area's got, I, I feel, a, a strong entrepreneurship spirit. Um, it's one thing that I noticed when I moved here about five years ago. Um, and I know that this is kind of challenged right now with the work and work from home order. Do you guys get a sense that companies or individuals are still thirsty for that spirit? Um, do you get a sense that they're being more or less more risk adverse? Uh, as, as in, I mean, for the individual startups or for yeah, people? Yeah. Right. No, um, I mean, not, not at all. I mean, if anything, the energy we saw around the life science sector uh, 
coalescing around the challenge that the world was faced with, right? It continues to be faced with. But if you look at activity from February through May, not only just the, the repurposing of, of resources and energy, uh, the new companies that were formed and the investing that went into to COVID therapies and treatments, if anything, it would it brought sort of a you know a lightning bolt of energy into into the entire industry and you know an immediate call to purpose as this Gregory mentioned and these are very long programs right it takes ten to twelve years for a drug to get to market I mean people are looking for answers now six months a year out not even that even faster than that and so you know I, there's there's no shortage of energy and we clearly saw uh, that there was. Um, an amazing coalescence around the you know, call to action with this. And I think it's always there. It was just more visible because of what's happened earlier this year. Uh, right. That being said, that being said, companies that are venture funded or pre-venture and trying to reach a milestone now are challenged. The early companies are challenged to hit those milestones just because of disruptions in work. We're seeing a lot of creativity, amazing creativity now in how they're overcoming those challenges. But there definitely was a slowdown and it made people able to get data or to advance programs. Uh, earlier this year, but no shortage of, of energy and enthusiasm and good ideas. Awesome. Yeah, I know re redirecting resources, I think, is the, the, the term that we've, we've coined here that, you know, it's, it's just a new, new era that we're living in. And so it's just how do we make it, you know, productive and, you know, successful. Well, you know, yeah, just to add on to what, what Chris said, I, I see it from another perspective, and that's the the, the larger ecosystem. Uh, I've I've never seen more kind of aggressive activity from uh, contract manufacturers, from suppliers, com component providers, just looking for who they can help. Uh, part of that's because they're they're conscious about slowdown, but uh, I think the whole ecosystem has really really jumped in. So, I think it helps also to remind people, particularly less familiar with the industry, that. While we talk a lot about human health and medicine and medical devices that are all things to help extend our quality and length of life, there are a lot of people doing research in other fields, you know, uh, a whole alternate food uh, effort is ongoing. A lot of this has to do with sustainability too. Um, there are a lot of industrial biotech company who, whose products are not necessarily a drug you ingest, but might be a a food you ingest or a fuel your car runs on or a new kind of battery. They're still working in the kind of labs that our, our company creates for people, but their product ends up being looking and feeling very different. Right. Um, I'm going to jump to one of our questions. Um, the question is, do you see any trends of companies wanting to have both their R&D and manufacturing business units under the same roof? Hey, can I take that one? I'm the manufacturing engineer. Uh, one of the surprising things in my research has been this story about, uh, about reshoring. Uh, it was happening, not not a, I wouldn't call it a torrent, but it was certainly happening uh, at, a, at a steady, steady stream of companies looking to uh, to to reverse their their uh, their offshoring. Uh, one of the studies that I just and I just published a paper on this uh, about uh, uh, the companies that said, "Hey, we 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 made a mistake. We lost the synergy 
We lost the uh, resilience that we had when we were able to work more closely together. And, and so that was happening. And this data I had was from 2019. And, uh, and then since, since COVID, uh, I've seen a, a real rush to uh, shorten supply chains, to bring production back. Some of it's because it can't get done somewhere else, but also just because of the kind of feeling of vulnerability uh, that COVID has really brought forth. So uh, whoever asked that question, thank you. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> but I, I would have. Um, uh, I've definitely seen this happening, shorter supply chains. And we're talking the life science, the biomedical industry too. So I don't want to make statements about any other industry, but this industry really is high, what I call a high value industry. So in other words, the manufacturing that occurs, the, the manufacturing isn't just a, a pass through. It isn't just something that, oh, you can have someone else do. It actually adds, the manufacturing adds significant value through the processing of the materials of the components. And that enables it to be, stay here in the Bay Area. So uh, that's a big explanation why uh, 55 of the 100 companies actually stayed here too is because they can, uh, they're adding high value here. They need the knowledge workers that, uh, that Jeff and Chris have alluded to. And talent, and talent too. But we haven't talked about personalized medicine and, and you know, cell therapies, which are a big development in the business where people are making drugs that are specifically for one individual. And so manufacturing now may be, I'm manufacturing something that's really gonna pro only work on Becca. And so the manufacturing is at a much smaller scale. You're not making millions of pills. You're making something that has been designed for one person. And so that's a much smaller scale and much more custom. And so that definitely wants to be co-located very closely because it's very, uh, very sensitive to the patient for whom it's targeted. Right on. That's right on, Jeff. Exactly. It. Instead of scaling up, we're scaling out. So in other words, uh, scaling to cover more people, more smaller groups of people. Uh, so yeah, cell and gene therapy manufacturing has been uh, a real uh, important uh, change or movement to take note of. Uh, we'll have much smaller manufacturing facilities uh, closer to the demand, especially in places like here in the Bay Area. Yeah, that's happening here and in Boston too. You're seeing people building manufacturing facilities, maybe not you know right in downtown, but obviously within within distance where they can take their people that are doing the develop, you know, they can, they can have cross fertilization of the researchers and the manufacturing. So everyone out there, tell your kids that manufacturing isn't uh, greasy, dirty stuff that's, you know, offshore somewhere. What it is, is making things for a company like Bayer. Uh, Bayer isn't a manufacturing company. They're a company that, that saves lives. And uh, if you made things for Bayer, that'd be pretty awesome. So. Well, Bayer's a major employer in Berkeley, so they can employ a lot of people. And that's important today when we're trying to, you know, revive an economy that's been really tough on a broad spectrum of people, probably tougher on people who don't have PhDs and the kind of manufacturing Chris would know more. But I know that Bayer, they have a whole, you know, chain of, uh, they have people who are washing, you know, uh, lab uh, glassware to very sophisticated manufacturing technicians. Those are all important jobs for the Bay Area. Yeah, and it's, uh, I think, 
Thanks, Jeff. And I, I should also give a little shout out to Wareham, who's also been an excellent partner for Bayer for many years in the East Bay. Um, but it, it is, we have a huge cross section of, of different uh, uh, education levels that are employed. They're all very high talent, very critical jobs. And as I mentioned, we've got something like 40% of our workforce is on site now, even under these continued shelter in place times, because we're manufacturing actual clinical product for uh, mostly patients with hemophilia there. And there's, there's a lot of other companies like that in the Bay Area too, that are, that are generating a lot of the times so high-end manufactured products moving towards cell and gene theory, therapy now. Great stuff. Great stuff. Um, all right. So we're, we're kind of at that 10 minute mark. Um, I would like to ask you guys to pull out your crystal ball. Um, and I've got two questions and I might uh, throw out one more from the audience. Um, but give us like kind of your final thoughts on um, maybe each of you can answer and I will as well, like the, the most likely path maybe out of this crisis and how will the Bay Area um, science community help society with that path and, and make it more of a reality. Um, I think there's a lot of great minds here and you know, how do we put that into action? Well, I guess I'll say that I, there may be others who feel differently, but I believe science is the solution to this problem. And I think sci scientists such as the ones working here in the Bay Area and really all over the world um, are gonna figure out a vaccine. How soon is gonna be a, a good question that really matters to a large part of the globe. I'm just hopeful that our politicians will realize that science is real, does matter, and that needs to be supported and invested in because if it's hard enough to do science when everyone's trying but when people are discrediting it, I'm worried we're just gonna take longer to find a solution. You're here. <laughs> well said. I mean, I'm a coward, I hide behind data. So <laughs> um, what, what I've seen is I've seen what, and Chris mentioned this earlier, this, this so when, we, you, when you, uh, we were answering your question about entrepreneurial spirit, I have seen nothing uh, but uh, but renewed and uh, or continued uh, enthusiasm in this industry uh, over the past six months. Uh, if if anything, I mean, my phone's uh, phone's been ringing uh, ringing away with people asking about how they could fit into some of these other teams that could make uh, anybody do antibody work, uh, who could work on vaccines, who could work on protective equipment. Um, so. If anything, this is, I mean, here's the thing. I did a study about 10 years ago on a range of different industries, including aerospace and, and electronics, and, and as well as life science. The people in life science are different. Uh, and I, I mean, this is no slight to anyone in any other field, but the people who are attracted to the life science industry, I think are, are, are wired a little bit differently. And uh, they want to save lives. They want to make, make people uh, healthier and uh, extend people's lives and, and reduce their suffering. So I, I think there's great a great future for uh, for the Bay Area and and it's going to be led by uh, led by uh, science. Hi, my name's Chris and I'm different. 
Um, <laughs> no, I, we're, we're going to see, I mean, you're already seeing it. You're seeing iterative research leading to improvement in care, a lot of experimental therapies and how we treat people with COVID, right? And then the vaccines will roll out over time and it's, it's, it's not going to be right away. And, and it's funny because we talk about a post-COVID world or that word's been thrown around. I, I don't know that there is a post-COVID world. We had pre-COVID and with COVID. And hopefully we get it to the point where it's under control. And we're not thinking about it as much anymore. But over the globe, that's going to take a very long time. I think that with the science coming out of UCSF and Stanford and immediately being applied to uh, with, with the pharma companies and the biotechs that are taking this forward, you know, we're, we're having a big impact on moving the needle on what living with COVID in a more normal way looks like. Right. And from a real estate perspective, I don't, I, 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 you know, I think most people are planning for how we get through this and, and, and how we survive then, or how, how, we, how we operate when we're back to more normal again. There was a question that came through about why VC or early funded companies are feeling this more. Because someone like Bayer can say we have a two-year window, we'll just do things in a, in a differently during that time to get there. A lot of early funded companies don't have enough money to think a two-year window. They had a 12-month window, and now they're looking at six months being, you know, six months past COVID coming around, and that just really impacts their their funding equation. Yeah, right. those milestones. They've got to hit those milestones. Awesome. Well, this this year of 2020 has. Um, I know has included a, a plethora of, of challenges. Um, the industry has gotten uh, quite some focus, and um, but you know, like we've talked about, funding continues. Um, there's a there's a positive spirit. There's a positive you know kind of outlook and perspective. Um, you know, it's 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 given science kind of a new image. I think um, it's brought a spot for commercial real estate and in the industry where life science was seen more as an alternative investment, I think. And now people are seeing it as a market leading opportunity um, in, in addition to uh, invest and in develop life science companies and facilities. Um, I don't think that has, it, it's never been stronger. Um, so I think, you know, from today's discussion, we'd like to thank everybody uh, for listening in. This, this is recorded, so I uh, would like to in, encourage you guys to um, download this on your podcast. We've, we've got the option available to share later after the webinar. Um, and Adam, um, if you would love to, to conclude this message, take it away. Thank you, Becca. That concludes today's Zoom, and that was incredible. Um, I'd like to thank you guys so much, Becca, Chris, Jeff, and Greg, for putting today's session together. And thank you to everyone who was able to join us. Uh, hopefully, you can join us for our next Zoom in on September 17th at 3 p.m. Uh, we'll be talking about the current state of the private equity and venture capital market here in the Bay Area. We've got some great panelists uh, who are non-real estate people, but have been fueling uh, the engine that drives our, our office economy. Uh, you can learn more or sign up at naopsfba.org. Thank you, everybody.